Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. Our Lord and our God, we do thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for the the privileges you've given us this morning to come and to just sit and worship in your word. And God, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to receive. Give us minds, Lord, to understand. God, I decrease that you may increase. I become less so that you can become more. I pray that as your word goes forth, it would produce what you, your spirit has intended it to produce. And I pray that especially this morning as your word goes forth, that the, the challenge and the encouragement that is pouring out of these verses would reach the hearts of your sheep. And that as they lead this morning, they would know that their good shepherd is caring for them. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, I do want to thank you for being here with us this morning on this Lord's Day. We want to welcome all the, the members, the guests, and the, the friends who are with us this morning. Last week, we concluded the, the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, and we come now to the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John, where we are presented with a miracle that is not recorded in any of the other three Gospels. However, it is a miracle that many, whether you are religious or irreligious, are very aware of. Of course, we are speaking about the, the raising of Lazarus, a man who had been sick, dead in the grave for four days, raising Lazarus from the dead. If there had ever, ever been a miracle besides Christ raising himself from the dead that solidified the, the deity of Christ, it would have been the raising of Lazarus from the dead. J.C. Ryle says, in no part of our Lord's history do we see him, Christ, so distinctly both man and God at the same time. A man in sympathy and God in power. John once again chooses to show us, give us another great sign to show his readers the purpose of this book. Or so that the purpose of this book might be displayed. And let's be reminded once again of the purpose of this book of John, this gospel of John. John 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. And what a sign that John gives us. J.C. Ryle again notes concerning the Lord Jesus Christ as God. Listen to this. As God, he makes the grave itself yield up its tenets. Think about this. Just, just the thought of that. Just the, 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 the statement. As God, he makes the grave yield itself or yield it makes the great grave itself yield up its tenets. And what an amazing truth that is, that Christ commands the grave, and even the grave obeys Christ. Although this is the, the climactic moment in this chapter, there are many other truths in this chapter that I'd like you to, to be aware of, or that I'd like to show you this morning. So with that said, let's stand for the reading of God's word, and we'll go to John chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 1 through 16, although we may not get to all those verses this morning. Verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. 
It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness shall not lead to death, for it is the it is for the glory of God so that the son of God might be glorified through it. Verse five. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after he after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the light in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go up to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go away that we may die with him. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear the word of the Lord. You may be seated this morning. This is the the final miracle that Jesus will perform before the religious leaders decide that they've had enough. They had seen enough. And we will see in John chapter 11, verse 53, that they began to make plans to put Jesus to death. Let's look at, though, and, and focus our attention this morning on verses one through three. The focus of these events in this chapter all surround around a man by the name of Lazarus, which is also translated Eleazar. Lazarus is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Eleazar. Eleazar or Lazarus meaning he whom God has helped. And we will find that Lazarus will come to live out the meaning of his name as he is raised from the dead by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His identification or he is identified by his location. He is Lazarus from Bethany. And just in case there was any confusion as to, well, which Lazarus in Bethany, he is further identified as the brother of Mary and Martha, who had by that time become very well known. John points out that it is the same Mary who, in chapter 12, comes to Jesus and anoints his feet with perfume and wipes that perfume with her hair. This is that same Mary. As the chapter opens up, it must be noted that the events in chapter 11 are happening not far from the events that happen in chapter 10, meaning that they're not far removed from what has just happened in chapter 10. In chapter 10, we saw that Jesus was having a discussion or at least a confrontation with the Jews. And one of the things that he spoke that caused them to pick up stones to kill him was, I and my father are one. This is in John chapter 10, verse 30. Again, they caused that caused them to pick up stones ready to kill Jesus. And this will also be the reason why the Jews or not the Jews, but his disciples discourage him from going back to that place. Because the last time they left, they had to escape with their lives. 
So, as the 11th chapter opens, it opens with a message from Martha and Mary concerning their brother, Lazarus. The message is simple. The message is short. The message is to the point. It read, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. Lazarus is sick. Now, to be sick in that day could mean the end of your life. It was not uncommon for people to, during that time, to die of a common cold. And we'll find out in verse 18 that Jesus is in or near Jerusalem, which is about two miles away from Bethany, where Lazarus was. Now, as we discussed in our previous sermon, the timing now, and I want you to get the whole setting, the timing now is about winter. Jesus tells us, or the Bible tells us in John chapter 10, verse 22, that there is a feast of dedication. We know that feast dedication, as Isaiah said last week, as Hanukkah. So it's wintertime. The Passover is about two months away, possibly. So Passover for us is Easter. So we're looking at a, at a time lapse between possibly Christmas and Easter. And during that time, it could have been two Maybe three months at the most, which means this. Jesus only has about two or three months to live. Are you tracking with me? And with his own death quickly approaching, Jesus receives a message from Martha and Mary. Verse three, Lord, the one whom you love or he whom you love is ill. I'd like you to take a, a notice of a few things or take notice of a few things in that message that is sent to the Lord Jesus. I believe that this will, there will be some helpful points when it comes to our lives in prayer. We will see this morning a message and the response. Number one, in the message, the intimacy of that message. When you read the message that was sent to Jesus, think about this. You don't find the name of Lazarus anywhere in that message. Nowhere in that message do you find Lazarus is sick. Rather, when the message is sent, it is sent with the understanding that there is such an intimacy between the Lord and Lazarus that when they said the one who you love is sick, Jesus would immediately know it was Lazarus. Can you imagine the, the intimacy that there must have been between Jesus and this man? That all it took was for someone to tell Jesus the one you love is sick. And Jesus immediately recognized who that was. They recognized that there was an intimacy between the two of them. And this is true for Christ and all of his sheep. Jesus Christ has this kind of intimacy with every single one of the sheep that are his own. He knows them and he loves them in such an intimate way that when you call upon him, he doesn't say, who are you? He automatically knows who you are. The relationship between Christ and his sheep is so deep. The union between Christ and his sheep is so deep, but that union is more dependent on Christ than it is on you. Why do I say that? Because the message did not say, Jesus, you know how much Lazarus loves you, and he's sick. Rather, the message says, Jesus, the one you love is sick. So Jesus' response was not dependent upon how much Lazarus loved him, but the response of Jesus was dependent upon how much Jesus loved Lazarus. Think about this. If we came to Christ on the strength of how much we loved him, how apprehensive we would be to ask him for anything. Can you imagine coming to the Lord 
on the strength of your love for him and saying, Lord, it's me again, and you know how much I love you. If it were me, I would be a little bit apprehensive to expect him to respond to my request based upon my love for him. Our love is wavering. Our love is uncertain. But the love of Christ is divine. The love of Christ is perfect. The love of Christ is unchanging. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Amen. Paul encouraged the believers in Rome. Romans eight thirty five. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or famine or persecution or, fa- or, or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, no powers, no height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Thank God that our relationship with Christ is not dependent on our love for him, but is dependent upon his love for us. So the prayer, Lord, it is me again, you know how much I love you, is reversed. Lord, it is me again, and I know how much you love me. Therefore, I know I'm unworthy, but your love has overcome my worthiness. Therefore, I know I don't deserve to even speak to you, but I know because you love me, you hear me. When you pray, you're addressing your heavenly Father. Oh, and there is an intimacy there that he would even allow you to call him daddy. That he would even allow you to call him his father. What intimacy is he inviting you to, his sheep, when he says, you are my children and I am your father. Think about the intimacy that is given to Christ in that message. Lord, we know how much you love him. And because you love him, you will know what to do. There is nothing that you can't say to him. There's nothing that you should hide from him. He already knows everything that you're thinking. He already knows everything that you're feeling. And guess what? In spite of what you think and in spite of what you feel, he still loves you. Can you imagine that kind of love? It it caused John to say, what kind of love is this? And do you think that Jesus was unaware of the sickness of Lazarus? Do you think that when Lazarus' message of, of his sickness and illness came to him, do you think that he said, oh, wow, I didn't know that he was sick? That's a shocker to me. Of course he knew that he was sick. And, and Jesus even knew what was going to happen in the sickness before Lazarus died because of the sickness. And he knew that he, what he was going to do in light of that sickness. It pleases God when you come to him. It pleases God when you come to him knowing that he is your daddy and that you can share and give to him all of your thoughts, all of your feelings, all of your worries, all of your cares. He wants intimacy with you. And he's offering it to you. Number two, notice in that message, the humility of that message. Notice that the sisters, Martha and Mary, they don't give Jesus any instructions in the message. You notice that they do not ask Jesus to come and heal their brother. They don't even ask Jesus to come. It is assumed that they would have liked Jesus to come. And we see later that when they when Jesus finally does arrive, both of the sisters approach Jesus in the same way in verse 21 and verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They were not blaming Jesus. They were simply acknowledging his power. But in the message itself, there is no command. There is no request. 
There is great humility when they send the message to Jesus because they don't demand or request anything from him. They don't require anything of him. They simply send him the message and trust that he will know what to do. How vital is this point in your prayer life? How vital is this point in your prayer life? What do you do? What do you say to God when you come to him in prayer? How do you approach the sovereign God of the universe when you come to him in prayer? Is there com- complete humility and reverence when you come before God? Or do you command God? Do you come to God and do you tell him what to do? Do you come to God and do you require things from him? I listened to the radio station the other day and I, and I won't tell you which one. But there was a lady praying for sicknesses and disease, diseases. And in the process of, of her praying, she began to command God. God, I command the Holy Spirit to go and to heal such and such as infirmity. I command the Holy Spirit to go this way. And I sat back and I thought, I didn't read the part of the Bible where you could command the Holy Spirit to do anything. Interesting. No, heretical. When we come to God. We come to God because we are not God, and He is. Why would you come to God and command God to do something, thinking simply that He is some kind of cosmic Santa Claus that you can command to go left and right and do everything that you want Him to do? No, we bow before the Creator of heaven and earth. And we trust that when we bring to Him our request, He knows what to do. This is what Job discovered. When Job began to question God, he learned that God is God. And when God began to ask him questions... He put his hand over his mouth and says, I will stay my mouth. What did God ask him? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? You want to ask me questions? Have you entered? Think about the depth of this. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked into the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of the deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Can you lift your voice to the clouds that they may flood with water and that they may cover you? Can you send forth lightning? And listen to this, that they may say to you, here we are. So let us be very careful when we when we begin to command God, direct God, give God advice, ask God how long, ask God why not. Hold your tongue, as Job did. I lay my hand on my mouth, I've spoken once, and I will not answer twice. I will proceed no further. Job simply saying, my mouth is closed, I say no more. Let us be humble before our God. Let us not dare come before God and command, demand, give directions, or give advice to the one who is sovereign over all. And Martha and Mary knew at least that much. Number three, notice the message or the dependency in that message. Why did they send a message to Jesus? They could have called upon anyone. They could have called upon anyone, but out of everyone, they called upon Jesus. Why would they decide to send a message to Jesus? Because in essence, they are saying, Jesus will know what to do. How about you in prayer? Is that why you come to God? I have no idea what to do in this situation, Lord, but I know you do. I am completely confused on what to do next, but I know you know what to do. And even if you don't do anything, God, whatever you do, whatever the result is, I trust that it's because of you. That's a dependent kind of prayer. 
That's a, it's a kind of person that is completely trusting on the sovereign God of the universe that whatever the outcome is, God, you're in control. And that's why I'm going to be at peace with whatever happens. Because you're in control and I'm not. This helps us in prayer. We know that when we come to God, whatever he chooses to do, it's because he's in control. Whatever he chooses to do, it's because he's in control. Whether it be in our favor or what we think is not in our favor, we trust that he is right. He is judge and his judgment will be perfect. Our confidence through all of this, is it based upon our love for him? You better hope not. The way that you love God, the way that some of you are falling asleep in here and the way you love God, you better hope that when you come to God, it's not dependent upon your love for him. You better bank on the fact that it's based upon his love for you. Amen. I know what you've done for me. I trust that you're sovereign, that you're all knowing and that you love me and that whatever you decide, it is going to be good. That's the kind of person that trusts in God. And let this be an encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, in your lives. And, and let it be an encouraging challenge to you when you come to our God in prayer. And whatever, whatever you face in your life, let this be an encouragement to you on how you approach our God. Now, this is how you approach God. How does God respond? Verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Now listen, Jesus does not mean that Lazarus is not going to die. Rather, he is pointing out the ultimate end of this particular issue. And it would not be that men are standing around mourning a dead man. No, that's not going to be the end result. Instead, it is going to be men standing around an empty tomb. Marveling at the miraculous work of God, the son who has the authority to call the dead back to life. That is going to be the ultimate end. And it is also preparation for the hearts and minds of the people around him to get ready for his own resurrection. I don't just raise other people. I raise myself. This sickness will not end in death. He says this sickness will be for the glory of God. What an amazing thought that is, especially when we've been taught in this modern church culture that any kind of pain, affliction or disappointment should be avoided at all cost or even rebuked if it comes your way. We are fed that the thought of any pain, any trial, any any afflictions, any severe disappointment should be rebuked and it's all from the devil. It must be. Because if God loved you so much, why would he allow these negative things in your life? But your minds should return to the conversation that took place when the disciples asked Jesus, when they stood in front of that blind man, who sinned that this man was born blind, his parents or himself? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This man has not sinned or his parents, but it is, for the, it is that the works of God might be displayed. Now, this man is not to blame. We, we don't have... Any any kind of fingers to point at him. We live in a fallen world. No, his parents are not to blame. This is not the result of some kind of uh, uh, generational curse. No, this man was born blind so that the son of God may pass by him one day. Fix his, his gaze upon this blind man and give him sight. It is for the glory of God. So it is with this man who is sick, Lazarus. His sickness will not end in death, but rather his sickness, now listen, has been allowed 
for the glory of God. His sickness has been allowed so that God may be glorified and so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Was Lazarus terminally sick? Yes. And it was for the glory of God. How are we to understand this when we're sick? How are we to understand this when we have any kind of pain, any kind of affliction, or or even any kind of terrible disappointment? We understand that Jesus will ultimately heal Lazarus because we know what we know the rest of this story. But what should we expect with the rest of our story? When we send these requests to God, what should you expect? Will the result of Lazarus be also the result of your life? Meaning that because he raised Lazarus, does that mean he also will raise you? Or fix your problem, heal your pain, take away your sickness? Ease the disappointment? Should we expect that since Lazarus has, since Christ has done this for Lazarus, that he should also do it for you? Should we presume that God exists for the purpose of making sure that sickness, pain, affliction, disappointment never come our way? Let me ask you a question. What if God did not heal you? Does he become less God? What if God does heal you? Does he become greater Because he has healed you. What if God heals you? Has his atoning death and resurrection gained more power because he healed you? What if God heals you? Has his healing of your body taken away the fact that you're still going to die? You will still die one day of something. Say he does heal you. Does he love you more because he's healed you? Has he become a greater shepherd because you got what you think you wanted? Let's say he doesn't. Has he become, again, less great because he has not healed you? Has his atoning death and resurrection lost its power because you have not been healed? And if you die, does that change your eternal destiny with him? Meaning, you died. Does that mean you're still not going to have eternal life with him? Let's say he doesn't heal you. Does that change his love for you? Does he love you less because he didn't heal you? Let's say that he, he does, doesn't heal you. Is he no longer the good shepherd? answer to all of those things is no. Every single one of those is no. Whether it is in life or in death, all is for the glory of God. And nothing, again, could separate you from his love. In this instance, the sickness would result in death and it would bring glory to Christ because he would once again put himself on display as the son of God. But notice what he does. Again, he knows this man. He loves this man. And this will be used for the glory of God. So what does he do? He gets up immediately and goes and heals his friend. Is that what your Bible says? You might be reading a Mormon Bible if you No. Verse five. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister. 
He loved them all. We know that Martha was concerned about many things and that Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and we know nothing about Lazarus, but we do know about all of them. Jesus loved them. All different. All different sheep, but still his sheep. And he loves them. And isn't it interesting that before the next verse, God the Holy Spirit inspires John to say he loves them. So keep this in mind as we get to the next verse. He loves them. Verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed longer. Two more days. In the place where he was. The Lord Jesus Christ, who has all power over diseases, all power over all things, could have have even thought the thought that Lazarus should be healed and he would have been healed. But he doesn't do that. He stays two more days. Knowing his friend is sick and knowing that his friend is going to die and knowing that there's still a two mile journey to get to him. He stays where he is for two more days. Because he loves him. He allows Lazarus to be sick. He allows Lazarus to experience the pain, the anguish that ultimately leads to death. Can you imagine that? He's allowing his friend. He knows his friend is sick. He knows his friend is going to die. And he's allowing it to happen. He's sitting back and saying, okay, we're going to let this carry itself all the way out. And he's going to go through some things. I don't know if you've ever died before. I'm sure it doesn't feel very good. And Lazarus felt it all the way to death. And Jesus let it happen. Why? If he loved him, why wouldn't he move instantly to go and heal this person that he loved? It's because he loved him that he actually stayed where he was for two more days. Think about that. You think it's if he loves me, then why doesn't he run to me? No, if because he loves you, he stays back and allows you to go through it. This is often the struggle in our minds when we face affliction, disappointments that we believe should not be happening to us because we're God's children. This doesn't happen to God's children. We're above and not beneath. We're the head and not the tail. Right? And then we feel abandoned when God doesn't immediately come. We feel deserted by God. But the exact opposite is happening. You're not deserted by God. Rather, God is ever present with you. Through the pain, through the affliction, through the disappointment. David understood this. He said in Psalms 23, 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for, my, for his namesake. Oh, this is what it is, walking with the Lord. There are times when you will lie down in pastures that are so green, plenty of food. You feel like life could not get any better. Then you you are by still waters. All that is in your life is peaceful. All that is in your life is calm. There seems to be no storms happening. But as you keep walking with your shepherd, as you keep walking with your good shepherd, sometimes he leads you through valleys. And those valleys are as dark as death. But the beautiful thing about walking through valleys is that you know that you have been walking with your shepherd through green pastures. He's been walking with you through still waters. And he's also ever present with you 
through the valleys. Although darkness and death seem to be all around you, he says, but I fear no evil. Can you imagine the death and, 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 and darkness all around you? Can you imagine the, 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 the type of, of darkness that has to be around someone to say, I feel as though I'm in the valley of shadow of death. And maybe some of you have experienced those times. Whether it be financially. And you feel like, God, I just don't know where it's going to come from. Whether it be in marriages. And you just can't get the other person to get on the same page with you. And you're crying out to God, why isn't this happening? Or whether it's with your kids. And you just can't understand, where did they come from? They can't be my kid. And then your mom and dad reminds you of how bad you were when you were young. Oh, maybe they got a little bit of that from me. Whatever valley it may be. Maybe you're going through disappointments where it just seems like every time you try, it's just not happening. And you say, I'm, I, I feel like I'm serving God. I feel like I'm doing all the things right. God, why wouldn't you come in, 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 and bless me with this? And it's not even a bad thing I'm asking you for. No, when you're walking through the valley, whether it be pain, affliction, sickness, or disappointment, you fear no evil because he's with you. And would you rather be healed of your sickness or know that God is walking with you through it? Would you rather have all disappointment go away or know that God will comfort you through the disappointment and that it will come ultimately in the end for his glory? Oh, there is much comfort in the shepherd who walks with a rod and staff. Yes. And the encouragement that David found, again, was through that dark valley. All sense of danger has disappeared. Because the shepherd is with him. And the good shepherd never abandons his sheep. Here's a question for you. Where in the world, or where in the Bible... Did you ever read that you will never face any kind of affliction? Please show me that place. I will tattoo it to my body. That'll be my first one. Where in the Bible did you read that you will never face or have any disappointments? Please show me chapter and verse book. Where in the Bible did you read that pain will never come your way because of the love of God? You won't find it. What shall separate us from the love of God? Isn't it interesting that Paul in that chapter of Romans says, shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, shall famine, shall nakedness, shall danger or the sword? He said, we're killed all the day long. Why would Paul go through the, the long list of mentioning sword, famine, nakedness, sword, being killed all day long? Because that's exactly what a, a sheep, a believer in Christ should expect. You should expect no less. As I said this past Wednesday, your war seemed to start when you got saved. Because there was no, no war before you were saved. Because you didn't belong to Christ. Now that you belong to Christ, there is a war. And there will be famine. There will be nakedness. There will be danger. But it has not changed the love of God. 
Matter of fact, more often than none, it's evidence of the love of God. Why would I say that? For the Lord disciplines those who he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure because God is treating you as sons. What is the rod and staff for? Pop you on your head when you're going the wrong direction. And also to pull you in close for intimacy. The good shepherd comforts his sheep with a rod and staff because he loves them and he loves them enough to discipline them and draws them close when they go through discipline. For love, for discipline, for growth. Jesus allows this man whom he loved to remain sick for two more days. And we find out at the end, it's a total of four days that he's been dead. Four days that he's been dead. Another point is that Jesus does not move on our timeline. He moves on his own timeline. How many times did Jesus say throughout the Gospels, my time has not yet come? He moves when he wants to move. He doesn't move when we tell him to move. He moves when he wants to move. He's on the timeline of the Father. And this is also important when we come to God in prayer. Then he'll move when he wants to move. He'll act when he wants to act. And he'll decide when he wants to decide. All these afflictions are allowed for the glory of God. They are intended to, to draw us closer to him and make us more like him. And doesn't it, don't afflictions and pain, disappointments, don't they have a way of drawing us closer to him? If we're really believers, if we really are one of his sheep, doesn't it, don't you find yourself reading your Bible more? Don't you find yourself on your knees a little bit longer? Don't you find yourself trying to be nicer to people just because you're aware that you're going through something and maybe you being nice might affect the way, the outcome of, of your situation? It's painful. But it's a molding that Christ is doing, that God is doing as our potter. He is forming the clay and it takes time to mold. It takes time to form. And oftentimes those moldings and shapings are painful. And they're hard lessons that come about through the molding and shaping. But in the process, we become like him. And that's the ultimate goal for God in your life is for him to be glorified. And for you to be an image bearer of him, to be like him. And he don't care what you got to go through to, be, to get that. Yes. Yes. Amen? amen? If you don't know, if you don't say amen, you better say ouch because it's coming. Something that is not mentioned here is this, the Jews view of death. The Jews, they believe that when someone died, the spirit of that person hovered over that person for three days. And that it could possibly return to that person's body. That there was some kind of hope. Jesus decides, I'm going to wait four days. Because after four days, everyone's opinion of that dead man is they are dead. Dead, dead. Dead, dog, dead. There's no returning from the grave. They're dead. So Jesus, very aware of what people thought about death at that time, says, I'm going to show you something pretty cool. Something that only God can do. I'm going to take a man that's been dead for four days. Who you already believe because the Jews did not embalm. Who you already believe is stinking to death. And I'm going to bring him back. Why? So that he can show who he was. The God of the universe. 
who calls light from the darkness and dead to raise. <clears throat> I, I love the, the thought that if Jesus had gone and healed him of his sickness, people might have been at least speculative that, well, maybe he would have gotten better on his own. But, oh, raise a man who's been dead in the grave for four days. And now you have men standing around and saying, what a miraculous work has been done. Only God could do such a work. And you better believe that's exactly what Christ was intending to do. And you better believe that for your own lives, God knows what he's doing. No matter what area of your life it may be. Listen, God is not aware. Not, not, God is not unaware. God knows exactly what is happening. God is not ignoring you in your lives. God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned you. God is moving on his own timetable. Ta- time and he is gaining glory for himself and molding you through that process. John Calvin says, let believers learn to suspend their desires. If God does not stretch out his hand to help as soon as they think necessity requires. Whatever may be his delay. God never sleeps. And he never forgets his people. Let that be an encouragement to you. And let the end of Psalm 23 be an encouragement to you. That you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Be encouraged this morning, brothers and sisters, that when you come to God in prayer, come in humility. Do not request or require or demand God to do anything. Simply come and let your requests be known, knowing that they are safe in the hands of God. When you come before God, know that he is intimately your father and that he loves you. And that whatever you say to him, whatever you speak to him, he will take, and not with a grain of salt, he will take and cherish and hear and he will respond when his time has come. And depend on God. Depend that God is the only one who can have any kind of impact in whatever you're asking him for. And trust that the response, whether it is delayed or even denied or answered, it will all be for the glory of God. And that you will be much more like him. For we know that in all things, God works all things together for the good. Let us stand this morning. And Lord, we come before you this morning to partake of your table. We thank you, God, that you have provided for us a reminder of the gospel. That we could see every single time that we gather. That your body was broken and that your blood was shed. So that those whom you love could be reminded that this is ultimately the greatest request of a prayer that we would have never prayed apart from the Holy Spirit that has been answered by Christ Jesus himself. And that is that we would be healed of our sins. All affliction will come. Pain will come. Death and disease will come, but they will ultimately not have the last word. For Christ has conquered sin, death and the grave. 
And for his sheep this morning, he reminds you of the means of grace that is offered to you. Who are his. And he reminds you that sin has been defeated, brother, sister. Death has been defeated, brother, sister. The grave has been defeated, brother, sister. And we celebrate the wonderful, miraculous work of not just a raising of Lazarus from the dead, but a raising of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, from the dead. And because he lives, we live. Let us celebrate him this morning as we partake.